All right, um, let's get started, everyone. Um, happy to be here on this beautiful day today. Hopefully you can get out and enjoy a little bit of this nice weather this weekend. Um, so today, what I want to do is threefold. I want to first close off standard of review analysis by talking about the competing jurisdictional boundaries between two tribunals question. Um, I'm then going to do a bit of a just high level recap to give you sort of the framework for a standard of review analysis, sort of going through that kind of the highest level cheat sheet sort of thing you'd want to have understood for your exam. Uh, finally, I'm going to introduce the uh, charter and, and, and sorry, and administrative laws intersection. And I'm going to do that while also covering the material that would have been your readings in chapter six, the questions of how procedural fairness and the charter intersect. Um, you should have gotten an email from me yesterday saying I took that chapter six off the syllabus and I have uploaded an updated syllabus. I apologize if anybody had read ahead and read that chapter, um, but I, I didn't want to you know, let the fact that I kept it on for too long cause me to just keep it there for no good reason because I think I can cover that material relatively easily while lessening your reading load which is still relatively heavy for next week because we do have a chapter in the book and then two very important cases on the intersection of the charter and administrative law. So those are the three things I want to get through today. I had hoped to have the sort of framework outline on the board, but um, I was betrayed by weak markers, so I was able to get some better ones, but I'll set that up at the break which may be a little bit earlier than normal today. So with that maybe over explanation of what we're gonna to do today, let's get into it. So you'll remember that when we looked at the Vavilov framework, we start with the presumption of reasonableness and then we have the exceptions. And the one exception to the presumption of reasonableness that I kept somewhat skating over was the competing lines of jurisdiction between two tribunals question. And I was doing that because I was anticipating this Forex case coming out, which it did. But then it was a relatively minor decision, very incremental, didn't really change very much, didn't certainly have the same level of, um, you know, let's give guidance on the whole problem as was done in Babylon but still will be a useful uh, touchstone to discuss this issue and to give you a sense as to the broad framework that applies and also perhaps to allow us to think a bit about what questions are still outstanding in relation to overlapping tribunal jurisdiction. Uh, so broadly you want to think this is the problem that arises when you, you know, as a lawyer or you as a you know, person living in society, say, hold on, I got a problem and I don't know where to go. I don't know if I go to the Human Rights Tribunal or I go to a labor adjudicator. 
you know, I don't know if I have a human rights issue or if I have a, um, a transportation safety issue. I don't know if I have a human rights issue or I have a residential tenancy issue. Now, you may hear me repeatedly saying human rights, and that is the area that tends to have this problem arise most frequently because human rights statutes are written in broad, purposive ways that are intended to apply generally to you know, private relationships, to allow people who don't otherwise have a charter protected human rights interest to be free from discrimination when they go to stores or in housing or in their employment. And as a result, this type of law is sort of overlaid across many other areas of law and can quite often be the source of competing jurisdictional boundary issues. Now, it doesn't have to be human rights. Any uh, two areas of law where there's a potential where somebody doesn't know which direction to go to get an answer to their dispute, you know, could have this problem arise. I just focus on human rights because it's where the problem has arisen and will continue to arise most commonly. So that's the problem. Generally, the problem comes in two broad classes that require different types of analysis. You have situations where you're considering exclusive jurisdiction and situations where you're considering concurring ju concurrent jurisdiction. And these raise very different problems and probably require very different solutions, although our understanding of the concurrent jurisdiction framework is not as complete yet as the exclusive jurisdiction framework. Um, I don't think I need to dwell much on the difference, but I just to make sure we're all on the same page, the difference is, of course, exclusive jurisdiction says you have to bring your problem to this tribunal. Concurrent jurisdiction means you can bring your problem to this tribunal, but you could also bring it to another tribunal. Um, exclusive is a question of where must you go. Concurrent is a question of where should you go. And those questions obviously admit of quite different analyses. So the issue of overlapping jurisdiction is touched on in Vavilov directly in just two paragraphs. It's dealt with very briefly, but I think it's worth considering those as even in light of Horrocks, those are extremely important paragraphs for grappling with this question. Um, and what the court says in paragraphs 63 and 64 of Vavilov is that the correctness standard is required by the rule of law when dealing with jurisdictional boundaries between two administrative bodies. And you can, I think, intuitively see why on 
you know, most conceptions of the rule of law, you could run into a significant problem if you had inconsistency in the resolution of a jurisdictional boundary question. You don't want a citizen or anybody in the country to be in a difficult spot where they say to themselves, well, there's two uh, tribunals and they both say that this is in their exclusive jurisdiction. Or I've got this dispute and one tribunal saying it's in the exclusive jurisdiction of the other tribunal, but that tribunal saying it's in the exclusive jurisdiction of the first tribunal, I can't go anywhere. Now you can have these obviously untenable situations where there wouldn't be any room for deference, where it wouldn't matter if both tribunals reasonably interpreted the jurisdictional grant if it results in a situation where neither of them will take jurisdiction over a dispute that's clearly in one or the others. So, correctness standard applying to these types of questions should seem you know, fairly um, intuitively acceptable that the courts would need to step in and resolve these disputes. I'll come back to this point, but that is within the framing of the exclusive jurisdiction, right? The who must take this. When you're getting into the framing of concurrent jurisdiction and who should take this, it does become much less obvious that correctness would be the applicable standard. Who should take this doesn't sound like the kind of question that necessarily admits only of one correct answer, right? There may be uh, different reasonable interpretations say, yeah, this, this is the type of thing that really should be more in human rights, uh, even though it could be heard within a transportation safety arena. So when we're thinking about this strong case for correctness, you want to have that tied to exclusive jurisdiction. That when you're dealing with questions of exclusive jurisdiction, that's where you've got a very strong case for correctness. When you're dealing with the concurrent jurisdiction problem, much less so. So coming back to Vavilov, looking at paragraph 64, the court starts off in sort of the most important paragraph in Vavilov about this overlapping jurisdiction by saying, administrative decisions are rarely contested on this basis, i.e. that there is a uh, jurisdictional boundary issue and that you really should be somewhere else. Um, now that is probably empirically true pre-Vavilov, that that's a rare ground to raise. Post-Vavilov, though, in light of the fact that this is one of, you know, four ways to get to a correctness review, and knowing that obviously unhappy, um, pe you know, people who are unhappy with an administrative decision want to get it reviewed on correctness, you know, query whether it will continue to be the case that this is an area that's not very often raised, or whether counsel are gonna start trying to, you know, all of a sudden you can find jurisdictional boundary questions everywhere. 
you want to get that correctness review, right? So um, whenever the Supreme Court of Canada you know, narrows the paths to get to a particular result, it's going to make the paths that are still open more attractive. There's that old phrase, you ever heard about um, you know, looking for your keys under the street light that's on? It's not because they're there, but it's just because that's the only place that you can look. And it's sort of like that, like you're going to try to force it into jurisdictional boundary uh, frameworks because that's where the street light's on to get the correctness review. So the court goes on in that paragraph 64 and they say, you know, when there are these questions of overlapping jurisdictional boundaries, the rule of law requires courts to intervene where one administrative body has interpreted the scope of its authority in a manner that's incompatible with the jurisdiction of another. So, interpret its own jurisdiction incompatibly with the jurisdiction of another. And the court says the rationale is simple. The rule of law cannot tolerate conflicting orders and proceedings where they result in a true operational conflict between two administrative bodies pulling a party in two different and incompatible directions. Members of the public must know where to turn in order to resolve a dispute. So I'm just going to pause there. And it does, at first, in that paragraph, sound like they're really only talking about exclusive jurisdiction. They're saying that that side of the equation. They're saying, you know, interpreting your jurisdiction incompatibly with another, um, pushing and pulling someone in different ways. But then when they say people must know where to turn to answer a dispute, well, that all of a sudden sounds like that could also be talking about the concurrent jurisdiction problem. So that's part of the reason that people thought, hey, this paragraph isn't that clear. Are they only talking about exclusive jurisdiction problems being the correctness standard? Or are they saying, just in general, where we have two tribunals and people need to know where to go, uh, that's where we're going to have a correctness standard, whether we're talking about exclusive or concurrent jurisdiction. So then they say, as with general questions of law of central importance, the application of the correctness standard in these cases safeguards predictability, finality, and certainty in the law of administrative decision making. So you're left after Vavilov with some questions. You're left with the questions, most notably, of is this only talking about situations of exclusive jurisdiction? How do we approach situations of concurrent jurisdiction? And what are going to be the situations where we're really going to find these exclusive jurisdictional problems? So that sets the stage for Horrocks, and that maybe explains why there was you know, fairly significant interest in this Horrocks case amongst people who are interested in administrative law because they thought, well, here we're going to get a chance to have a framework that's going to be clear and workable for overlapping jurisdiction, which will be something that will come up more and more often. And when you think about overlapping jurisdiction problems, one unique feature about them is 
Think about it from the perspective of an administrative tribunal member. So when you are sitting in an administrative tribunal, where do you look to ascertain your own jurisdiction? Well, overwhelmingly, predominantly, it's your enabling statute, right? If you're on the residential tenancy branch, you look at the Residential Tenancy Act, Workers' Compensation Board, you look at the Workers' Compensation Act, the so on and so on and so on. So the tribunal is used to interpreting that statute, well familiar with it. But where do these overlapping jurisdictional problems arise out of? It's not from your own statute. You know, your statute, if you're on the Human Rights Commission, says you have jurisdiction over human rights complaints. Rather, the problem arises because some other statute that you have no familiarity with, you may never even heard of or realized existed, purports to grant exclusive jurisdiction over some area to a different body. But now, when somebody comes before you and says, I demand that you answer my question, it's your jurisdiction, and the opposing party says, you can't. That's in the exclusive jurisdiction of this labor board, or whoever else it may be, the Transportation Safety Tribunal. You're all of a sudden put in a position as a tribunal member of having to interpret somebody else's statute to understand the limits of your own jurisdiction. It's a unique problem, right? It doesn't arise in other circumstances where you're asking an admin tribunal member to go completely outside of the statutory regime to interpret something else in order to resonate back at its own jurisdiction. So it's an area where clear guidance for the administrative decision makers on how to go about answering these problems is especially important. So we turn to, to Horrocks itself. And what you have here is you know, the classic intersection between labor arbitration and human rights. Most of the overlapping jurisdiction questions that have gotten to the Supreme Court of Canada have had to do with labor and employment uh, tribunals versus human rights. And almost inevitably, it comes up in situations where someone's been dismissed and they allege it's because of a disability they have or because of a uh, immutable characteristic that they have and they're being discriminated against. So in Horrocks, you have a woman who um, gets in trouble for um, you know, apparently being drunk or drinking on the job. And the employer says to her, listen, uh, we'll give you one chance, one last chance to stay on your job, but you're gonna have to abstain from alcohol entirely, go through alcohol testing, 
and you're going to have to go into an alcohol rehabilitation program or you're fired. And she says, no, I don't accept those terms. I will not do that. The employer says, all right, you're fired. She's unionized, so she grieves that. The union grieves that. They come to a settlement with the employer, which basically is that she has to go on that program. She has to go on that last chance program, abstain from alcohol, be tested, go to, um, go to uh, rehabilitation. Um, she doesn't succeed. And I've, I've, I've done some of these types of cases in the past, and it's really hard for somebody who's got alcohol dependency to never mess up, right? To, to go from I'm having this problem to now I need to stop and I'm in this treatment, and then to just be, you know, to never have a problem. And these, I'm just, just to give you the full context so you understand maybe a little more about if you haven't touched on this area before, how it you know, really works in practice. These alcohol monitoring obligations are extremely um, strict because how it works is, you know, if I was on one of those, I could get a call right now and it would say you have to go get tested. And I could say, all right, you know, bye. I'm, I, so you have to respond immediately to these random checks if you can't make it for any reason, um, you, are, you can be deemed in non-compliance. Um, it depends on the terms of your arrangement, but it may even be that one deemed non-compliance means you're, you know, you're done and you're out. So these can be very intrusive, very difficult to, to succeed with. Even people who do their absolute best may find situations where they simply can't get to the uh, testing in time and they, they're found to be in trouble. Uh, and furthermore, we all know addiction is pernicious, extremely hard to, to escape, and most people take multiple tries to get out of addiction. And so Ms. Horrix uh, doesn't succeed um, in satisfying the terms of the program, and she gets uh, fired for, for non-compliance. So what does she do? Is this discrimination on the basis of her disability of alcoholism? Or is this purely a labor matter? Is this a, a matter that should be dealt with through labor arbitration? That's the nub of the question. She decides, I want to go to the Manitoba Human Rights Commission. The other alternative was to have representation through her union do a grievance through the labor arbitration system, the Manitoba labor regime. You can see there's a, um, there's a difference between those two types of processes. You know, the one is personal. You're saying, I have been discriminated against by that entity and I want a remedy. The other one is collective. They say, we represent a group that has signed a collective bargaining agreement and you violated the terms of that collective bargaining agreement. The, the wrong is done to the entirety of the union, in essence, in the labor arbitrations framework. The wrong is done to the individual directly and exclusively within the human rights context. Ms. Horrocks has complete control over a human rights claim. Ms. Horrocks basically is at the, um, I wouldn't say the mercy, but she's she doesn't have control over how the union 
chooses to advance her, her labor claim. Um, different remedies available. You know, with labor, you're probably looking at reinstatement as the only remedy. With, with human rights, there may be a damages claim. I'm not certain if that's, in fact, the case here, but that often is the case, that you have uh, an opportunity for some additional remedies if you can get into human rights. So she goes to Manitoba Human Rights Commission. The, um, the chair, the head of the Manitoba Human Rights Commission hears her case and decides that there's concurrent jurisdiction here, that she is allowed to go to the Manitoba Human Rights Commission. They consider her case. Um, that's appealed or judicially reviewed, appealed after the judicial review, and it makes it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, where they're faced with this question of, you know, is this a matter in the exclusive jurisdiction of the labor arbitration regime, in which case you can't go to human rights, or is this a concurrent jurisdiction issue? So, to cut to the end, the Supreme Court of Canada, the majority, says, sorry, Ms. Horrocks, this is the exclusive jurisdiction of the labor arbitration. Um, they then say, or they, they go through the analysis, and they say, you know, as set out in Vavilov, I'm not going to defer to you, Human Rights Commission, in your decision that this is within your jurisdiction because we have one of these competing jurisdictional questions here and we need a correct answer here as a, as a safeguard for the rule of law. The Human Rights Commission advanced a fairly interesting argument where they said, well, Within this analysis of where to go, there is a question that arises as to the essential nature of the dispute. That's part of the classification exercise that we'll see in a second. And they say, determining the essential nature of this dispute is a highly factual question. And that's the type of thing that we could defer to, uh, even if ascertaining the legal limits of the two tribunals may be a question of law that you could easily have a correctness standard on. Looking at, well, where does this dispute fit? Because what is the real fundamental nature of this dispute is, is factual. We could defer to the Human Rights Commission on that point, not have the Supreme Court of Canada you know, trying to ascertain the precise nature of Ms. Horrocks' dispute. But the court says, no, we're not going to accept that. We're not going to allow the correctness standard to be effectively circumvented by introducing a reasonableness analysis within. We are going to say the rule of law demands consistency, predictability, and finality on these questions. And that means that reviewing courts are going to have a full correctness review on all facets of this question, including characterizing the essential nature of the dispute. Um, so I'm just going to put a quick pause on 
this competing jurisdictional question issue because another issue arises within this case I've talked about before but is perhaps best illustrated and discussed in this case out of any of the material we cover and so I wanted to highlight it um, and it is another standard of review question but it's the question of what's the standard of review so we have the tribunal and we, you know, we know that we have a correctness review. Then we have the JR at the court. So they're applying the correctness standard here. But what about the standard of review between the JR at the Superior Court and the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court of Canada? What's the standard of review that this court applies to this decision? And the court in Oryx says, when you have this, an appeal from a judicial review decision, you, in essence, act as this, this never happened. You stand in the shoes of this court, and what you are looking at is not this decision, but you're really looking at this decision again. That's the decision on review at the appellate court. This decision may be interesting, may help you understand you know, the issues a bit better, may be persuasive, but you're not looking to see whether this judge erred. You're looking to see whether this decision can stand in light of the applicable law of, statute, or of um, standard of review, etc. So it's a um, maybe intuitively somewhat sensible proposition that, well, this court was doing a judicial review and now this court is just as well positioned to do a judicial review. It's not like there's live witnesses. It's not like there's you know, a trial that happened where you're going to have an original fact-finding and deference. But it's also got its drawbacks, right? Um, you get two kicks at the can. You get a chance to fail on your first judicial review and just try again. That does not tend to uh, go easily with the idea that we want, you know, just speedy and efficient finality from the tribunal decisions, and we don't want these things mired down in judicial review before the courts. It would seem to privilege more resourced parties who have the ability to do a second level of, of appeal. Just being totally dollars and cents about it, you know, you're looking probably at like fifteen to fifty thousand dollars if you want a decent lawyer to do this judicial review. You're looking at fifteen to fifty thousand. Fifteen is that's hard to find. You're looking at that again to do the appeal. How many decisions are actually worth 100K to the individual when you're gonna almost certainly not get much costs back, even if you win? Not that many. 
strong incentives maybe to just fold. So this kind of practical problem, this somewhat seems like a bit of a throwaway thing, or what's the standard of review and this appeal between the Superior Court and the Court of Appeal, and then again, the Supreme Court of Canada, you know, same thing, um, it has very dramatic real-world consequences for, for your client, for accessibility, etc. cetera. Um, so that's just a side point, but I wanted to make sure we didn't gloss over that. Yeah, go ahead. What would the alternative be? That's exactly, that, that, that's what the, the court says, basically, is yeah, like, well, what are we supposed to say? Um, why would I defer to this lower court judge's application of judicial review frameworks because I'm in exactly the same position as they are vis-a-vis -vis the tribunal? So it's a, that's, that's the point, exactly. That, that's exactly right. Um, one alternative is to, and some statutes do this, they say, all right, you want to judicially review this decision, you skip this level and you go right to the Court of Appeal. The National Energy Board, for example, does that. Um, the Law Society Act does that. Another option is to limit your right of appeal coming out of a judicial review. To say, you know, a right of appeal doesn't necessarily have to extend on everything, especially without leave. So you may say um, a decision uh, brought pursuant to the Judicial Review Procedure Act, you know, which is the format that you have to bring a judicial review, um, cannot be brought to the Court of Appeal unless leave is granted by a judge or something like that. And there are regimes that require leave to appeal to bring a further appeal coming out of this type of a decision. So I think that that's a good um, potential source of comfort for the courts to say, look, if, if this procedure really is something the legislature didn't want, they can stop it by limiting the rights of appeal legislatively. Um, but you know, I think the court is saying exactly your point. Uh, we see this problem, it's a real problem, but what, what else are we supposed to do? It doesn't really make sense to say we would defer in any way to this decision reviewing this tribunal. The, the one little caveat exception is sometimes the judicial review is required to make original findings of fact, um, and that would be a situation where, say, there was affidavit evidence going to some procedural fault at the tribunal level that's not apparent on the record and maybe the tribunal itself didn't even really know about. And it may be in that sort of a situation where there's affidavit evidence saying, it turns out that this decision maker was biased in this way and this was hidden from everybody. And then there's cross-examinations on that affidavit before the judge. And they may in that situation be in a unique spot to better ascertain um, the facts, and there may be deference on those facts, but that's very much the exception. That's a very limited class of situations where that could occur, and so it's not worth um, clouding too much your broader conception that, yeah, when we have a judicial review and you have an appeal, you're running back the same judicial review arguments. Um, one thing that's awkward about this is the amount of time 
you can get at the trial level court for your judicial review is considerably more than the amount of time you can get at the appellate court for your judicial review. So, for example, I did a case not too long ago. Um, it was a three-day judicial review, and then it was a half-day appeal. So I had one-sixth of the time to argue the, the case before the Court of Appeal as I did at the Supreme Court level. Now, there has been some sort of focusing and narrowing of issues because you are, uh, you know, you've gone through it once and you may realize, I don't really have to get into all that. That kind of was besides the point. But still, it, you don't have the same, um, the same time to frame your arguments at the higher level usually. You know, Supreme Court of Canada, you're not getting more than one day for sure. Um, we'll look at the, uh, so I don't think we look at that, but I was involved in this one case to Seiko Mines Judicial Reviews, and it was you know, five days of, of hearing, and then you know, one day before the appeal, but they stand in the shoes, and it's very complicated and difficult. Now, who likes that dynamic? You know, generally, it's the respondent, the, uh, the person who's saying just defer to the decision, because it often takes more time to show the problems, but not always. Sorry, I'm getting a bit off on a tangent. I should get back on track into competing jurisdiction or else we won't get through the stuff I want to talk about today. Um, but I'm glad we went through that because it is an important little wrinkle that I think people can find troubling. So, The, the court then turns to the facts of this case and the regimes at issue and determines that, indeed, the legislature has given labor arbitrations, labor arbitrators, through the labor arbitration statutory regime, exclusive jurisdiction over these types of labor disputes in essence, a problem with a dismissal in a unionized workplace. And the court says that their jurisprudence has, has long recognized this. This is an established rule, in essence, that these sorts of labor arbitrations, labor arbitrators do have exclusive jurisdiction. However, they say, that would fall, that, that rule we've set out and that general understanding of what the legislatures intend would have to fall in the face of clear legislative intent to give another tribunal concurrent jurisdiction. So they say labor arbitration is an area where we've recognized exclusive jurisdiction and we understand that to have been the legislature's intent in this case. But just to be sure, let's do a double check and make sure that there's no clear legislative intent to give, ex to give concurrent jurisdiction to another tribunal. And again, this touches back into one of the overarching themes of Babylon and indeed this course you know, legislative intent is always going to be the guiding light. They call it the pole star. And so 
whatever rule or principle the court sets out, you know, subject to a constitutional issue, could always fall in the face of clear legislative intent to the contrary. And so the court says, well, let's go through it. Was there intention to give the Human Rights Commission concurrent jurisdiction here? And they say, look, first, the mere fact there is another tribunal that you know, on its face, on its broadest reading, would seem to have a jurisdiction over this type of a dispute, an allegation of discrimination on the basis of a dis disability, that's not enough. That's not enough to oust the exclusive intent to keep it in labor arbitration. If you have one sort of general and one that we read as intending to be exclusive, the general is not gonna be that exception to the exclusive. It's gonna go the other way. You need something more. You need something indicating that that other tribunal's sort of general jurisdiction was indeed intended to act as an exception to that otherwise exclusive jurisdiction. Um, they say a, a positive expression of the legislature's will. And here they say we don't have that. The Human Rights Commission's jurisdiction doesn't have anything that shows a positive intention on the part of the legislature to chip away at the scope of that exclusive jurisdiction. The court considers and sort of disposes of the um, concern arising from the issue that I identified earlier of, you know, human rights is this individual, Ms. Horrocks is in charge, this individual remedy. Labor arbitration is collective and she's not in charge, it's her union who's bringing this forward. But the court says, look, that's, that's not, enough to say that the legislature intended to allow her to pursue this individual remedy. And they say she does also have individual remedies as against the union if they fail to adequately represent her. So there's still an individual right, but it's that right to representation that she can still claim. She can go to her union, she can complain to the courts if the union's not representing her. Quick pause to say those are some of the hardest cases to find a lawyer to take those cases against a union for not properly representing you because the employer side labor firms tend to not work for individual employees and the employee side labor firms work for the unions. So to find someone who's willing to you know, not work for the employer and not work for the union and conflict themselves out of potential things with that union is really hard. So there's a practicality there. That's just a minor thing, but it's a niche if any of you want to grab it. You could get a lot of clients in that exact niche. Um, key areas to focus on in this decision, and I think Justice Brown, the old law prof that he is, was like, let's give the students a bone. And Paragraphs 39 to 41, you know, you could just copy into your notes, basically, and separate them into a 
sort of framework, uh, uh, an outline, and it would look just like a nice test to apply. Um, so he says, you know, paragraph 39, to resolve these jurisdictional contests, you have a two-step analysis. First, you have to decide if exclusive jurisdiction was intended to be given to this one body. If you determine that there was an intention to give exclusive jurisdiction to that one body, which is going to have to require you to consider whether there was a positive expression of will to give, to chip away that exclusivity, but you decide, no, this is, there was an intention to give exclusivity to this body, then you have to decide if the uh, dispute itself falls within the scope of that exclusive jurisdiction. And if you say yes, and yes, yes, it's exclusive, yes, this falls within it, there is your answer. He goes on to note, well, if you have a, a no on, on one of those questions, it's not intended to be exclusive, or this doesn't fall within the scope of what is exclusive, you may be in a concurrent jurisdiction situation. But then he says, and this is probably what's somewhat disappointing about this case, well, I don't think concurrency arises here, so I'm not going to tell you how to resolve problems when there's concurrent jurisdiction. And so that, that's why this case feels like a letdown. So we kind of already knew the first part. We knew if you interpret the jurisdiction to be exclusive and you find this to fall within the exclusive jurisdiction, then that's going to be your answer. Where we were looking for more guidance was, well, what do you do in other situations? What do you do with concurrency? How do you resolve where should you go? What do you do as a tribunal in that sort of a situation? But alas, we'll have to wait another day for that. Um, so you know, I've talked about the kind of main sources of difficulty with this analysis from the tribunal member's perspective. It's hard to go interpret someone else's jurisdiction to see if they have, in effect, ousted some of your jurisdiction. Um, there are some ideas offered at the Supreme Court of Canada for ways that could help with that, but those weren't picked up on. You know, for example, um, inviting the tribunals to kind of caucus on their jurisdiction and try to come to an agreement. Um, you know, but again, these are issues that are going to probably be left for another day. Um, the question of what you would do in the situation of concurrent jurisdiction, decide who should take the case, you know, they're quite interesting. Um, do you, you do international law as a required course? Yeah. So it should probably start to, there should be a doctrine that comes to mind as a potential way to resolve sort of concurrent jurisdiction. We think about like forum non-convenien stuff, um, comedy. These types of ideas are probably what's going to guide the analysis on how to resolve concurrent jurisdiction. Um, but 
broadly, these big important questions are being left for another day. And so you can see this as just the other end of the you know, pendulum swing from the Vavilov, let's settle all business today, let's reconsider the entire framework, let's consider issues that are absolutely not raised on the facts of this case, to this case where it's like, we're the Supreme Court of Canada, we're just gonna very narrowly resolve this case and leave anything that doesn't arise on the facts of this case for another day. Um, so big picture for your point of view, you need to understand this basis for a correctness review of overlapping tribunal boundaries. You need to know that when we're talking about whether something is in the exclusive jurisdiction of one or another tribunal, you're clearly going to be in a correctness review throughout the entire thing. You also want to know, though, that if it's a question of concurrent jurisdiction, that both uh, bodies have concurrent jurisdiction, we really don't yet know if that's going to be correctness throughout or if there's room for deference on this question of who should take jurisdiction. Are there any questions then about the Horrocks case or these jurisdictional boundaries? All right, um, that's great. So let's take our break. I'll get the diagram up for our review of the standard of review, and then we'll get some um, introduction into the charter and administrative law intersection. All right, let's get back to it, and we'll get into this review. Um, so I just want to take a step back and sort of provide something of a visual walkthrough of the Babylon framework because, oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, maybe after, I'll leave it up after the class. Um, but let's, let's walk through it, and it's also in the notes uh, as well, but um, maybe not quite as visually clear. So let's just take a bit, bit of a walk through the Babylon framework. So if someone says to you, um, hey, how is the court going to tackle whether this administrative decision is, uh, you know, can stand on its merits? They're going to say, well, if you're talking about not the process, but the substance of the procedure, we're going to use this Vavilov framework, and we're going to have to decide on the standard of review first. And if we're deciding the standard of review, this is what we're doing. I mean, I should put that right there. This is, you know, S. O R. What's the standard of review? I'm starting with the presumption of reasonableness. What are the exceptions? Unless it's a statutory appeal. Where's the nuance there? There's not a lot. If it's a statutory right of appeal, it's going to be a correct or the appellate standards, the Housen and Nicolaisen correctness on law, palpable and overriding error on fact and mixed fact and law. The only nuance really to keep clear there is we're not talking about a statute contemplating a right of judicial review. It needs to be a statute contemplating an appeal. So the Judicial Review Procedure Act says 
you know, you can bring a judicial review in this form. Well, that's not a statutory appeal. Yeah. Isn't the other side of that is that the legislature can also expressly prescribe a different kind of review? So it's not just a statutory appeal. The actual legislation could give a different standard, like patent you're absolutely right, and that, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent, excellent thing. I should have that in the diagram. You're right, I jumped ahead of, of the, uh, the entire Administrative Tribunals Act of British Columbia, which prescribes statutory standards of appeal. So, great point. Let's take a quick step back and remember that we are always dealing with legislative intent, even on questions of standard of review. And if the legislature prescribes a different standard of review, that standard will be respected and applied. And the example you want to have in mind is the Administrative Tribunals Act. So I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. But we could put up at the top, um, if no statutorily prescribed standard, uh, you know, in your mind, it's up there. Uh, and if no statutorily prescribed standard, then we're into the Babelov framework, which is fundamentally a common law framework, uses the common law rules. So presume reasonableness unless statutory appeal, and statutory appeal means a statute that says you have a right of appeal, not judicial review, appeal. Or you have a rule of law concern that falls into one of these three categories constitutional question, question of law of central importance to the system as a whole, or a jurisdictional lines between tribunals. When we're talking about constitutional questions, you want to remember that this is a spot of some nuance. The clear examples for what are the types of constitutional questions that are going to be attacked on this correctness standard are division of powers questions. You know, your federal tribunal, is this subject matter constitutionally something that you can grapple with? And questions of the interpretation of the scope of Aboriginal rights and treaty rights. We'll put a bit of a pin in the charter. That's the complicated thing for next week. So constitutional questions really think division of powers and existence and scope of Aboriginal and treaty rights. We'll get into the nuance on the Aboriginal and Treaty Rights point you know, in three weeks, I suppose. Questions of law, central importance, the legal system as a whole. I think having the examples in your mind of solicitor-client privilege, issue estoppel, abusive process, res judicata. These give you the ideas, the type of questions that have nothing to do with the specific statutory context, the subject matter at issue, but rather cut across or general legal issues. Third one then is the jurisdictional lines between tribunals we talked about this morning. 
And again, the nuance there is we're pretty clear on when we're talking about whether or not there's exclusive jurisdiction, but whether we apply a correctness standard when tackling that, should you take jurisdiction in a situation of concurrent, that's less clear. So, you know, it's already getting a tiny bit fuzzy, but these are the, the um, rule of law exceptions that are recognized. We remember that's not necessarily a closed list, but the court's like, I'm gonna take some serious convincing to find any more of these categories. So broadly, you know, on your exam or in your submissions, um, you have a pretty clear and easy framework to tackle. I will presume reasonableness unless I fall into one of these categories um, and you need to just have the, the bit of nuance understood with respect to where these rule of law concerns will in fact arise um, and be careful not to sort of overread and try to cram too much into constitutional questions. And that'll be much more clear after next week, you know, where those problems arise. So you get through standard of review analysis and you are if you're applying correctness, great. You just ask the, the court to decide the matter anew, you know, apply their decision-making prowess and decide the matter as, as they see fit. If you're applying reasonableness, though, you have the more tricky uh, standard to apply, but you finally have some good guidance as to how to go about doing that. And so that's where you come over here to the sort of how to reasonableness framework. Um, and you want to remember that they have characterized their approach as reasons first. We are focusing on the decision that was actually made inclusive of the reasoning process and not just asking ourselves if this substantive outcome, this order can fall within um, you know, reasonable uh, interpretation and application of the statute, we are asking ourselves not just about the outcome, but also the reasoning that got to that outcome. Reasons first approach. Um, you want to remember that in the absence of reasons, you look to see if you can ascertain the basis for which the tribunal made its decision. If you can, then that's what you review is the reasoning process. If you can't, then you are stuck with only considering the substantive outcome, not the process that got you there. But you have in the back of your mind, of course, there's the Baker question of whether there's a, a more fundamental problem that they were required to give reasons and they didn't. So, Reasons first approach, that's where you're focusing, is on the reasons, the decision actually made inclusive of the reasoning process. And then you're looking for uh, broadly two classes of flaws that could render a decision unreasonable. And the first is a failure of rationality internal to the reasoning process. Now, we're not taking a strict you know, logic, if A then B, positing blah, 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 uh, you know, applying those strict rules and saying any little flaw is going to necessarily be a, 
a problem. But what we are going to say is that we need a internally coherent reasoning process that is rational and logical. We need to be able to understand how you got from here to there and the steps along the way need to make sense. We need to be able to trace the reasoning process. So, is it just internally, on its face, unreasonable? That's the point one. That's the easier one, because you look at the decision itself, and you're just like, wait a second, can't get from here to here. This, this, this doesn't follow from that. The second one takes the digging. This is where the courts are saying, you know, we have a lot of work to do. We gotta review the entirety of the record, the submissions, etc. What do they mean? They mean you have to review the totality of the record and the submissions and tell them what's going on. So they give you things to consider, things that are relevant to assessing whether a decision is or is not untenable in light of legal and factual constraints. Governing statutory scheme, of course, that's where you start. What does the enabling statute say about this type of a decision? And potentially, what do other related statutes say that will have a bearing on how this needs to be determined? That's the other relevant statutes. Are there common law rules that must be applied here? And the example they give in that law, which I think is a good one to keep in mind about what sort of common law rules might really matter here, is if you are tasked with understanding whether conduct was illegal, maybe you're uh, doing a disciplinary process, maybe you're an immigration person, you know, maybe you're trying to ascertain whether somebody should get security clearance to work at the airport. Uh, if you want to ascertain if conduct was illegal, you better understand leading criminal law cases that may um, explain the limits of criminal liability. You know, it would be very unreasonable if the Supreme Court has said this type of conduct is not criminal, but then an immigration officer were to say, well, you know, it is criminal. So consider relevant statutes, relevant common law, Consider the principles of statutory interpretation. Remember we're saying here, not that you have to strictly go through the modern approach to statutory interpretation, recite it and go through all the principles of statutory interpretation, but rather that you are broadly interpreting and applying the law in light of its purpose and in a manner consistent with the broader statutory scheme. You want to consider the submissions of the parties. Did they even raise this question that is now being alleged to have been you know, unreasonably answered? Did they concede this point? They're now saying it was unreasonable to not consider. These are the types of things where the submissions of the parties may have a lot of bearing on whether you can find fault 
with the decision maker's decision. The past practices of the body, this is the, you know, the past decisions, and this is a tricky one. Because remember, are the, is the tribunal bound to follow its own decisions? No. Can the same decision makers go different ways on the same question and both be reasonable? Yes. But if you have this persistent pattern of dissonance where cases with the same facts are going this way and that way, and that's raised to the tribunal, like, hey, six cases went this way, six cases went that way, and the tribunal just ignores that and doesn't try to reconcile it or doesn't try to say, here's a coherent way forward, that might be unreasonable. That one's got some nuance, that's a tricky one. And then finally, the potential impact may govern how carefully and um, in detail you review the reasoning process. You may need more full reasons more complete explanations of the thinking, more complete dealing with any precedents that are raised if this is a matter of significant impact to the individual, whereas if it's just me getting that fishing license, I mean, give me a break. You don't need to necessarily go through an analysis of every potential precedent. So this is not a checklist, and these are not closed. But these are the things the court has highlighted as things that you're going to want to go through in applying your reasonableness framework. And certainly for your notes, for your test, this is the kind of thing that you're going to want to um, be able to, to show that you've internalized and are ready to consider. Um, fundamentally, in, in all of this, you do want to bear in mind that you are reviewing the decision that was made when it was made. You're not saying, knowing now what we didn't know then, let's reassess. You're saying, was this decision maker reasonable or unreasonable in light of what was before them? We'll talk a little bit about the ability to bring in fresh evidence when we talk about a midline practice, but broadly speaking, it's a question of reviewing the decision that was made, not the decision that could have been made on a different record. All right, so how to reasonableness, then you get into your remedy. You find it's unreasonable. You find it's incorrect. What do you do? You quash it and you remit it for redetermination. Unless the outcome is inevitable. And so you can have an inevitable outcome arise whether you've applied a correctness or a reasonableness framework. Vavilov is an example of applying a reasonableness framework, but finding that the outcome is inevitable. Because while there may be some residual discretion in how this law is applied, it doesn't encompass allowing a citizenship officer to deny Mr. Vavilov his citizenship, because 
His parents didn't have diplomatic privileges, right? Whatever the range of reasonable different interpretations you could take of this provision, it doesn't extend to applying it to people who don't have diplomatic privileges. So when you did extend it to people who don't have diplomatic privileges, you have necessarily acted unreasonable. And we don't need to go have you decide that again, because inevitably, you had to uh, not extend that discretion in the way that you did. But you also want to remember that just because you're in a correctness review doesn't necessarily mean that the outcome is inevitable. Because there may be more than one basis upon which a decision could be made. There could be a constitutional question or a question of law of central importance in the legal system that was uh, raised in and instrumental in the determination of uh, administrative case. Let's take solicitor client privilege, for example. Let's say the administrative tribunal said, this document is not subject to solicitor client privilege. They go up to judicial review, they get a correctness standard, the court says, of course it's subject to solicitor client privilege. Well, does that mean that the substantive outcome of the administrative process is now inevitable? No, just one piece of evidence that's out, right? So in that type of a situation, you don't necessarily have an inevitable outcome, even though you did a correctness review. So whether you're in correctness or reasonableness, you're still left with the same framework. What do I do for a remedy? I quash and remit. I quash the decision, set it aside, and send it back for redetermination, unless I'm in that rare exception where there is a true inevitable outcome. You know, whatever jurisdiction, whatever discretion you still have, it simply cannot be exercised in a way other than to lead to this particular outcome. All right, so. That's basically it, yeah. I guess this isn't quite administrative law, but in the case of something like Babylon, could Mr. Babylon go in after getting his ruling in Midlock, go pursue a torch claim for damages? Oh, let's say loss of employment or you know, suffering um, from the trauma he underwent from losing his citizenship and so on? Absolutely, but you run into um, the problems of limits of government liability in tort. And so ordinarily, uh, you won't be able to just establish a mere negligence action. Um, usually you'll have to do a misfeasance in public office. You'll have to show some kind of intentionality, bad faith, to get over the government limits on liability in tort. There actually is a chapter in the book that I didn't assign on that because I think this is really more of a tort law question. But um, you will have clients ask you that. They'll say, all right, we got it set aside. Now let's go sue. Let's go get, get my money. You're going to have to think, well, do they really suffer a loss? And quite often, it's hard to say there is a calculable pecuniary loss that you could recover as a result of one of these decisions, but sometimes there is. Um, Babylon, I think you have a pretty good case there is. This dude's been you know, 
basically kicked out of his home country for years and left in this horrible situation. Um, right after his parents are revealed to be spies. I mean, it just it's unbelievable what this guy goes through. And uh, so, so you know, you, you'd want to think, is there a um, basis for government liability here? Could I show misfeasance in public office? Is this a situation where the government would owe a duty of care such that an action in negligence could go forward? Um, the big cases you'd be looking at is telezone for the sort of process of whether you need to go through admin law or whether you can seek damages. Ordin Estate and Grail is kind of the big misfeasance in public office case. And then Ann's and Cooper are the, is the big case about government liability and negligence. So you'd have to kind of tackle all those cases. Um, all right, so this is your broad framework. As you can see, I can make it look kind of easy on the board. And as I talk about it, I can make it more complicated because I think about caveats and, and little nuances to it. Um, but at a minimum, you know, this is the type of thing that should be in your notes and where you need to expand upon that, you know, for the for the real top marks on the exam would be to to get those nuances and to internalize the nuances. Yeah. I'm gonna miss this, but the exceptions to the reasonableness standard, that's not a closed list, but there's no intent to expand it. Precisely. I think you'd have, neither one of these are closed lists. I anticipate this list will be expanded because you could always think of more contextual factors that might be relevant in a particular case. I think this list will not be expanded. I think people will try, but I think they won't find success. But where you're gonna see expansion and contraction is you know, what are the constitutional questions that demand correctness? Does the application of the duty to consult, which finds its roots in the Constitution, attract correctness or deference? Um, how do we tackle charter questions? These are, these are the places where you're gonna see potential expansions or contractions of the scope of this correctness of the standards. All right, any other questions? Yeah, I'll definitely leave that up. Um, but let's move on to start to introduce the charter. Um, okay, so this is, I think, the hardest part about administrative law, in many ways, is the intersection of the charter and administrative law, and in particular, the intersection of the charter and administrative law when it comes to reviewing actions of individual executive actors. Uh, I'm going to just be clear what I mean there, and I'm going to put my, I can't help myself if I get a chance to put three circles on the board. <laughs> so we have the judiciary, we have the legislature, and we have the executive. And you want to remember, obviously, the charter constrains the actions of the, exec of the legislature. What happens if the legislature passes legislation that's inconsistent with the charter, which can't be justified under a section one analysis, that legislation pursuant to section 52 of the Constitution Act 1982 
is rendered of no force and effect. So when you're looking at the charter and how it applies to admin law, sometimes all you're really thinking about is the charter compliance of legislation. You're just asking yourself, does this legislative provision unjustifiably interfere with the charter right? If so, I'm gonna give that legislation, that piece of legislation, that statutory provision, no force and effect. And that's what we're gonna talk more about in a second when it comes to the charter and procedural fairness, the subject matter of that chapter six we're not gonna read. But what about when you have the executive and you have an individual executive actor doing something that's alleged to infringe the charter. How do we tackle that? And this is the really tricky question. It's tricky for a number of reasons. So we saw this, an example of this, in Insight, right? Remember Insight, the challenges brought Joe Arvey, we see him arguing, saying, yeah, it could have been an admin law case, but I wanted to do this as a charter challenge, and I wanted to do this as a charter challenge to the legislation itself. Joe Arvey frames his case as a challenge to the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act provision which outlawed insight. What does the court say in response? They say, hold on, Joe. There is a safety valve provision that gives a discretion to a minister in the executive, right, to issue an exemption for a place like Insight. Your problem isn't with the legislation which works, which is within the bounds of the charter. Your problem is with the interpretation and application of that legislation by the executive you really could have been in an admin law framework. Your problem is with the ministers, unreasonable, unlawful, unconstitutional, take your pick, exercise of discretion. So that illustrates how the charter can resonate within the executive. It's not that the legislative scheme is unconstitutional, it's that the way the legislation was applied is unconstitutional. And you may remember other examples of this from your constitutional law class. Do you cover the Little Sisters case? Interesting case, uh, early charter, so I'm not surprised you don't cover it anymore. It's a LGBTQ bookstore in Vancouver whose materials that they were importing kept getting seized by customs officers for being um, obscene. And the challenge is to the obscenity provisions of the Customs Act that allow them to seize the material. And very similar to Insight, the court says, properly interpreted, the obscenity provisions are charter compliant. However, the application here was discriminatory because your stuff was being seized because you know it was LGBTQ material, but not because it was different than the non-LGBTQ material that was being allowed to pass through. 
Uh, there, there are other examples as well where you see this type of analysis where there's a challenge to the legislation, but the court says, no, your problem is actually with the application of the legislation. So clearly, if the legislature is bound by the charter and can't give the executive powers that exceed the charter, the, leg the executive can't then go ahead and just act outside of the charter, because what's it done then? It's acted outside of its jurisdiction. Did you ever get jurisdiction to breach the charter? Did the legislature give you a discretion to let you breach the charter? They couldn't have. They never did, right? So if they couldn't have given it to you, they never gave it to you, but you purported to do it anyways, you just exceeded your jurisdiction. I can just quash that decision. So the idea of the executive must stay within the scope of the charter is kind of easy to conceptualize because where are they getting their powers from in the first place? You know, the legislature. Um, and, and furthermore, they are directly bound by the charter. The charter applies to government. The executive exercising these powers is government and doesn't really matter if they come from statute or the royal prerogative. Either way, the executive must comply with the charter. But I think it's very easy to conceptualize you think about the source of basically all the executive powers we're talking about come from the legislature. Clearly, they must comply with the charter. So I'd say that's sort of the easy part. To conceptualize it big picture, where does the charter fit in admin law? Well, it fits because the executive has to comply with the charter in the exercises of its powers and discretions given to it by the legislature or even arising under the royal prerogative. But where it gets tricky is how do we reconcile that with standard of review analysis and the strong desire to defer to the actions of the executive. Every time I say that there is a charter issue at stake, do I get to have correctness review? Now we talked about searching for your keys under the light that's on in respect of jurisdictional boundaries of competing tribunals. Well, that's like a very dim light bulb. But the charter is like a floodlight. I mean, there's how many different cases could you say in some way implicate a Section 15 issue, a Section 2B issue? It's really, really broad. And so there's this strong concern that what you have is in essence like a bridgehead that's going to allow all of this correctness review to be introduced into the analysis. And that's broadly the problem that is tackled through what's known as a charter values analysis, which tries to incorporate both deference and the idea that if the um, decision is outside the scope of, or, or a decision that you know infringes the charter protected interest 
will be outside of the scope of your jurisdiction, so you couldn't do it anyways under pure admin law principles. Um, that's what we're going to spend next week unpacking, and it's going to seem, you know, probably not much more clear than it does right now by the end of next week. It's a tough question that is, um, I think, I think I said it's a number of times. I think it's going to be the source of the next big reconsideration by the Supreme Court of Canada on admin law grounds. But broadly speaking, you know, the idea that the charter applies to administrative actors should be relatively clear. And also, I think this is important, but people don't always get this straight. They sometimes forget, are we talking about the charter applying to the legislation itself or to the actions of the executive actor? And you really want to have that clear in your mind because they are fundamentally different frameworks. Um, Another problem, just to, I should have said this a second ago, but to sort of you know, get it in your minds before we, we tackle um, these charter values questions next week, is how do you do a charter analysis? We all know it's the Oaks test. But the Oaks test is framed very clearly towards challenges to legislation not to individual executive actors. You know, pressing, what, what's the first part of, of the Oaks test? A pressing and substantial legislative objective, right? So it doesn't, the, the Oaks framework wasn't written for the E's, it was written for the L's. So how are we gonna analyze the actions of the executive in a charter view? Do we just apply the oaks? Do we modify the oaks? Do we do something else altogether? These are the types of questions we're going to grapple with. These are the difficult ones. So that's the idea there was to give you a glimpse as to the hard questions that are coming. The idea now is to kind of answer an easy question, which is the intersection of the charter and procedural fairness. And this would have been difficult to teach you at the beginning of the class, but I think I can do it in like five minutes now because we've gotten you know, so far along the road. And where the intersection happens is really in relation to just one point that I've said a number of times, and that is why are the J's even reviewing the procedural fairness of executive action? Well, it's because there is a presumption that the legislature didn't authorize the executive to act unfairly, right? But what can presumptions be? Rebutted. How do you rebut them? The legislature being explicit that, no, we don't require you to provide this procedure. You don't get an oral hearing here. You don't get reasons. I don't care that this decision maker seems to be biased or, or there seems to be an institutional bias. I've explicitly authorized that within the legislation. So in your hierarchy, you've got this common law presumption of procedural fairness in how you interpret the um, scope of executive powers. It can be rebutted by explicit legislation. But what trumps legislation? The charter, right? So where the charter intersects with procedural fairness is in circumstances where the legislature has decided to explicitly allow a tribunal 
to provide an unfair process. You've explicitly said, I don't care that the Baker factors would demand an oral hearing here. You don't need one. If you can show that your charter rights are engaged, then you could challenge, not the executive here, but who are you really challenging? The legislator. You're challenging the legislation itself. You're saying, hey, that provision in the act that says I don't get an oral hearing before I'm extradited to this other country is inconsistent with the charter because my section seven rights are implicated because I'm facing detention in another country. My liberty is at issue. And so therefore, you cannot deprive me of that liberty except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And you know what one of the principles of fundamental justice is? It's that procedural fairness and natural justice will be followed. So this is where it's really nice and easy, is that the courts have, in essence, said, you have a Section 7 right to procedural fairness. Why this isn't a bigger deal is because it's really rare that your Section 7 rights are implicated by an immune decision. It's really rare there's going to be a decision that truly is going to deprive you of life, liberty, or security of the person as those ideas have been interpreted. And from constitutional law, you should remember that's relatively narrow. But so long as you do have a life, liberty, or security of the person interest um, at issue, if you can show a hook, a trigger to get Section 7 analysis, then you can demand full natural justice procedural fairness rights, which will be determined on a Baker analysis, regardless of whether there's a statute that would otherwise say you don't get it. You might be able to say, I get an oral hearing. You might be able to say, I get reasons. I get disclosure of documents and a right to reply. I get a right to legal counsel. I have a right to be uh, to have my case determined without undue delay. And you can make those arguments absolutely irrespective of whether or not the legislature has tried to take them away from you. Does that make sense? All right, good. That's chapter six. So we're that's that's really all we had to do. Um, so you want to just have that in your, you know, this is kind of, if you're revising your notes, you might throw this caveat more cleanly within your procedural fairness section. This is just a, you know, a last thing to consider before determining that a um, right that would otherwise be demanded by Baker's been ousted by statute. Make sure there isn't a uh, charter section seven right at issue. All right, well, that, um, that worked out well. The timing on this class was perfect. Uh, and I did press record again. I said a very, my heart sunk for a second, <laughs> I did.